The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Visualizing a New Horizon, Emerging Advances in the Treatment of Cognitive Impairment Associated with Schizophrenia. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FMF 860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. Hello. I'm Phil Harvey. I'm Leonard Miller Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the Division of Psychology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. Today, we're going to be talking about visualizing a new horizon of emerging advances in the treatment of cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is typically diagnosed in late adolescence to early adulthood, and the lifetime prevalence in the U.S. is approximately 0.7% which doesn't vary around the world. It's one of the top 15 leading causes of disability worldwide, and it's associated with increased risk of premature mortality with a reduced life expectancy of about 25 to 30 years. There are three main domains of symptomatology in schizophrenia. There are positive and disorganized symptoms, which are the classic diagnostically relevant symptoms that lead to a DSM-5 diagnosis of the condition. Hallucinations, delusions, disorganized speech predominate, as well as other unusual disturbed behavior. These symptoms are treated fairly well by antipsychotic medication and are not the primary cause of disability. Negative symptoms include reduced emotional expression, including flattened affect and alosia, which is reduced speech output. And there's also reduced emotional experience, including avolition, asociality, and antidonia. This constellation of negative symptoms is strongly associated with functional outcome, particularly in social domains. And in terms of cognitive impairments, there are multiple impairments in cognition and schizophrenia, including challenges in working memory, episodic memory, processing speed, attentional impairments, as well as challenges in social cognition, which is the ability to perform socially relevant, cognitively demanding tasks, such as recognizing emotions and inferring people's intentions regarding their behavior. There's a recognition that schizophrenia is largely a cognitive disorder. Positive and disorganized symptoms typically are what lead to psychiatric intervention and treatments. But cognitive impairments are present in approximately 80% of patients and commonly begin before the onset of the illness. Cognitive symptoms remain and continue to cause impairment after positive disorganized symptoms are controlled, commonly with antipsychotic therapy. It's important to keep in mind, cognitive impairment is not secondary to symptoms or treatment. All the cognitive impairments in schizophrenia were described decades before antipsychotic treatment was offered to anyone. Cognitive impairment is present in milder forms in otherwise unaffected relatives and can be fairly significant in people who have uh, a subclinical variant of schizophrenia called schizotypal personality disorder. It's persistent across the course of the illness, including before the onset of psychotic symptoms. And the severity of cognitive impairment is the strongest predictor of long-term disability and impairments in quality of life. Importantly, the more cognitively impaired you are during a prodromal period, the greater your risk for converting to an actual psychotic condition. Negative symptoms are also correlated with cognition and everyday functioning. And patients who manifest both negative symptoms and cognitive impairments 
are at higher risk for showing wide-ranging social dysfunction. So the magnitude of impairment is fairly substantial. Most individual ability domains, as measured by the matrix battery, the NIMH measurement and treatment research to improve cognition and schizophrenia, find that the level of impairment is between one and one and a half standard deviations for each individual domain with processing speed most impaired. If you look at composite scores, composite scores are often even more impaired, largely because people with schizophrenia manifest impairments across an array of different ability areas, not just one, which leads then to composite scores being disproportionately affected. Now, why does cognition wind up being impaired? Is it the adverse neurodevelopmental course of the illness, which leads to changes in cognition and behavior in early adolescence? Could this be due to dysregulation of functioning of the neurotransmitter systems, such as glutamate, acetylcholine, and subsequent impacts on neuroplasticity? So we see that the excitatory inhibitory imbalance is hypothesized as a pathway to cognitive impairment in schizophrenia. It turns out that there are alterations in GABAergic terminals that lead to dendritic spine loss. We see that the neurons in schizophrenia are less bushy and developed than they are in healthy individuals. There are pathways into this process, including the interaction between dopamine and glutamate, the interaction between acetylcholine and dopamine. So what we see is that the homeostasis between transmitter systems is disrupted in some way. And this is why attempts to modify a single transmitter, such as blocking the dopaminergic D2 receptor in order to reduce psychotic symptoms, makes psychotic symptoms much more manageable, but doesn't do anything for cognitive impairment or negative symptoms. So considering that GABAergic, muscarinic, dopaminergic, and glutamatergic systems interact with each other and homeostasis between all of them is required, interventions that affect circuits rather than single transmitters probably have the most potential for improving schizophrenia overall. There are a lot of molecular mechanisms that could underlie cognitive impairment in schizophrenia. There is obviously the genetic influences. There's a strong genetic influence on schizophrenia. And in the GWAS era, we've identified a number of susceptibility loci that seem to be combining to lead to schizophrenia. Interestingly enough, there are also loci that are associated with cognitive functioning. And the genetic signature of schizophrenia includes genes both for schizophrenia and for cognition. So impairments in cognition on a genomic basis seem to be associated with increased risk of schizophrenia. If we look at epigenetics, epigenetics reflects plasticity. And one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that modifying the epigenome in response to experience is how people learn. It's how they manage to be flexible in terms of their behavior. And impaired epigenetic response to environmental stimuli is another possible cause of circuitry imbalance. How do we assess cognitive impairment and functional disability? There's no expert consensus on how to assess these domains, but it's clear that cognitive assessment is something on which there's a higher degree of agreement. However, there's a disagreement about how much information is required. 
It's been suggested that abbreviated cognitive assessments, like the brief assessment of cognition, gives you the same information as a longer assessment like the MCCB. There are multiple performance-based assessments of functional capacity, and it's very clear that cognitive impairment impacts on functional capacity, and there may be a cascade where impairments in cognition lead to impairments in functional capacity, then lead to the inability to perform everyday living skills in the real world. Interview-based measures of cognition have been employed. It's very challenging to get accurate reports from people with schizophrenia because cognitive impairment leads to impairment in the ability to report on your cognition. But these rating scales have been found to be quite reliable and valid when administered to people who know the patients well. So if you're a clinician and you want to find out how impaired someone is, if you ask someone who knows them well, the answer you get is probably going to be good enough. Similarly, interview-based uh, assessments of real-world functioning are important and valid. The challenge sometimes is finding someone who knows someone with schizophrenia well enough to give you these reports. Hence, the focus on ecological momentary assessment, where we actually examine people's functioning in the real world, contacting them on a regular basis and asking them quite simply, where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing and how are you feeling? And there's no substitute for actual real-time sampling of how people are functioning in terms of getting a valid answer on what people with schizophrenia do all day. Recently, a virtual reality assessment technology has been developed that allows us to measure people's ability to perform an array of skills in a simulation environment. The challenge with ecological momentary assessment is if someone isn't doing something, you can't tell how good they are at it. So if someone stays home and doesn't try to go shopping, you have no idea if they'd be successful if they tried to do it. So what the VerveCat does is it actually gives you tasks, which involve figuring out how to cook a recipe, figuring out how to get on the right bus, shopping, and paying. So what the VerveCat does is it forces you to do various activities and measures your capability in doing so. Because it measures things in sort of real time, you can capture elements of processing speed and other cognitive abnormalities, as well as executive functioning challenges. In contrast to older measures of functional capacity, like the UCSD performance-based skills assessment, the VervCat is up to date. The UPSA asks you to do things like call directory assistance, which people don't do anymore. So I think in summary of this part of the discussion, we see that cognitive impairment in schizophrenia is significant and wide-ranging. There's both a neurobiological and genomic structure that most likely underlies it and allows us to think about treatment targets. Cognition and functional capacity are both critical sub-contributors to everyday outcomes in schizophrenia, and it's most likely that impaired cognition is mediated through its impact on the inability to perform critical functional skills leading to disability. In this section, we're going to talk about novel treatments for cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia and talking about improving quality of life as a consequence of improving cognition and functional capacity. What can we do to improve functioning? We can target impaired cognition with a variety of different strategies. You can use pharmacological agents as a standalone therapy, choosing a neurotransmitter system or circuit that's activated by that particular agent. Computerized cognitive remediation has been shown 
to have excellent efficacy in people with schizophrenia and related conditions. The problem with cognitive remediation, of course, is that if it doesn't focus on skills, you can improve your cognition, but not necessarily your ability to perform functional skills. We'll return to that in a couple of minutes. You can augment cognitive remediation with pharmacological interventions. It's been shown quite convincingly that interventions with stimulant therapies and other potential cognitive enhancers can be used to augment the benefits of cognitive remediation, possibly by improving people's engagement, motivation, and attention, which allows them to focus more directly on the cognitive remediation task at hand. Physical exercise has been shown to improve cognition, and when paired with cognitive remediation, it's been shown to have a number of benefits as well. Physical exercise is also an easy intervention to do. It doesn't require any money or a membership, but like cognitive remediation, physical exercise requires motivation and engagement. So people with significant negative symptoms who we find commonly are engaged in sort of sedentary activities may be difficult to get off the couch and get them to do physical exercise. Neurostimulation interventions are starting to be examined for enhancing cognition. There's some very promising findings so far. Neurostimulation, of course, is not something that you can do on your own like you can with cognitive remediation where you could train at your own residence or a rehabilitation center. But neurostimulation is also an intervention that can be dosed really very effectively and could very well be paired with pharmacological intervention itself going down the road. So let's talk about different pharmacological agents. It's a large unmet need. Across the different neurotransmitter systems, including acetylcholine, glutamate, serotonin, dopamine, GABA, and norepinephrine, there are a number of interventions that have been attempted. We have found a relatively small impact on cognition across all of these different interventions with very minimal significant effects on individual cognitive domains. However, some more recently tested agents, like procholinergic agents, not necessarily cholinesterase inhibitors, but also muscarinic agonists, may have an impact on working memory. Glutamatergic agents have been suggested to improve overall cognition, but there are new developments in the study of glutamatergic agents that suggest possibly better benefits. I think it's very possible that pharmacological agents may be more effective when combined with cognitive training or even skills-based psychosocial interventions. If you think about it, if you've got a, a pharmacological compound that enhances cognition, then in order to improve someone's outcome, it might be very helpful to use that benefit on cognition to augment their ability to learn skills in a rehabilitation program. Antipsychotic medication in schizophrenia is something that has been thought to be a, a path by which we can improve cognition. Some newer antipsychotic medications have reduced side effects, which may in fact indirectly improve cognitive functioning. The fact is that people with schizophrenia start getting treated with antipsychotics early on. There's no impact of antipsychotic treatment on the profile and severity of cognitive impairment when you look at cross-sectional studies. There may be some modest benefits uh, for cognitive performance of some medications, although the results are quite variable. LAIs may be indirectly neuroprotective through relapse prevention because we've seen that relapses have a very detectable adverse impact on gray matter in the brain. 
but some antipsychotic medications may adversely impact cognition through sedation, high levels of dopamine D2 receptor occupancy, which can lead to side effects, particularly motor side effects, polypharmacy, or certain adjunct medications. In this meta-analysis, which is very recent, they look at antipsychotics that might have cognitive benefit. As you see, they sort of bifurcate into two groups. There are drugs like lorazodone and amisulpride, which certainly seem to have a consistent benefit. In contrast to haloperidol and other D2 blockers like lamoxapride, which seem to have essentially no benefit. So I think that there is a signal that drugs that have lower levels of anticholinergic and antihistaminergic activity, like lorazodone and amisulpride, as well as zoprazodone, may have more potential for impacting cognitive functioning. So amisulpride occupied the first ranking positions on the composite score for several different domains, but you can't get it in America. Lorazodone was actually quite good for cognitive composite attention and working memory. The reason that this drug is promising is because it doesn't have any anticholinergic or antihistaminergic binding, people don't gain weight either. What's really appealing about lorazodone as well is it just became generic in America. So let's talk about some medications that have recently shown potential for improvement of functioning. CAR-XT is a medication which is xenomaline combined with trospian. Xenomaline is a muscarinic M1 agonist that's active both in the CNS and in the periphery. Trospium is a peripheral anticholinergic that does not cross the blood-brain barrier. As a consequence, since it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, it can downregulate the impact of xenomaline in the periphery. So we know that muscarinic acetylcholinergic receptors are critically important. The M1 receptor is associated with cognitive functioning. M1 was the target for treatment of Alzheimer's disease originally with xenomaline. And M4 agents appear to have the effect of down-regulating striatal dopamine release. So they operate to reduce dopamine transmission in critical areas, but they do that presynaptically, not by blockading the receptor sites. So drugs that hit M1 and M4 appear to have unique potential. And CAR-XT was tested in a phase two study. And when the patients who actually manifested baseline cognitive impairments were compared across CAR-XT and placebo, what you find is a fairly substantial effect size. So we're seeing here that the improvement in CAR-XT is about 0.6 standard deviations with placebo it's 0.1. The difference is very substantial. A 0.5 effect size would be a really important improvement in cognition if that could be substantiated. Basically, the other way that they looked at their data was they excluded patients who had uh, unusual scores in, in their baseline performance. I think it's important to keep in mind that some people with schizophrenia who participate in these cognitive enhancement trials give you performance that's actually invalid. Attending to that is important. So across two different strategies, looking at people who are impaired versus not, and looking at people who gave you valid scores versus not, the effect of CAR-XT seems fairly substantial. This was not a targeted cognition study, however. We're going to have to hold that thought for a more targeted study. Iclopertin is another drug in development that's being studied. It's a GLY-T1 inhibitor. GLY-T1 
the glycine transporter downregulates the impact of glycine at the NMD receptor site. Glycine is an obligatory co-transmitter that's required for the NMDA receptor to function. And there have been multiple efforts to target glycine. Gly-T1 inhibitors are interesting. They function in the same way that an SSRI does by blocking the downregulation of glycine and ostensibly increasing the activity at the NMDA receptor site. And so it's been thought that this kind of activity would increase glutamatergic transmission and might have a beneficial impact in both schizophrenia and in dementing conditions. So in the phase two study with icloperton, what we find is that there is an improvement in the composite score for the MCCB composite of 0.3 standard deviations for the 25 milligram dose. And it is also uh, efficacious in terms of the scores interview as well. So what we're seeing is there's preliminary evidence that this compound in a phase two study, which was targeting cognition, placebo-controlled, does have an impact. And so this study is being followed up by an extensive phase three program that's looking at whether or not this compound can actually enhance cognition in a much larger study. There's three different trials, connects one, connects two, and connects three. They're 26-week international multi-center studies where icloperton at 10 milligrams is being compared to placebo. It's daily dosing, and these different studies intend to recruit 586 patients each across 41 countries. This is about 1,800 patients at the end of the day with the MCCB as the primary outcome and two co-primary functional capacity measures, both of which we should be familiar with, the scores, the schizophrenia cognition rating scale, an interview-based measure of cognition, and the VERVCAC, a virtual reality performance-based functional capacity measure that has been shown to be correlated with both cognition and with real-world functioning, and is designed for use in clinical outcome studies. So this is a trial that will find out definitively whether or not equipertin improves cognition relative to placebo in people with schizophrenia. It will not be biased by being done in only one country. It won't be biased by having too small a sample. It won't be incomplete because it also has the key secondary endpoints as well. There are a number of other drugs that are being examined in studies for people with schizophrenia. Cannabidiol is getting a lot of attention across the board. And since it's being tested for everything from arthritis to Alzheimer's disease, testing it in schizophrenia makes perfect sense. D-serine is a compound that is also active at the glutamate NMGA receptor site. Luvidextat is a compound that's being evaluated because it also modifies the downregulation at the NMGA receptor site. Memantine and n acetylcysteine are also being examined in phase one studies. Guanfacine, which is an alpha adrenergic agonist, which is approved for treatment of ADHD, worked in schizotypal personality disorder, as did dihydrexidine. These are all compounds that have the potential of having benefit, but we need to wait and see what happens as they move forward. Now, targeting cognition through neurostimulation is a newer idea but there have been a number of consistently successful studies for TDCS. Multi-session prefrontal TDCS is associated with a moderate effect on working memory. When TMS is applied to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, you see moderate effects on working memory and some more 
Recent studies have shown more generalizable effects. What's really interesting about TNS is that when you apply it to other brain regions, such as the orbital frontal cortex, you sometimes will also get negative symptom benefits. So TMS has the benefit of being able to preferentially stimulate different brain regions with potentially different symptom implications. There are a lot of potential digital therapies for people with cognitive impairment and schizophrenia. Digital therapies can be used to augment adherence. They can be used to deliver cognitive remediation training via a laptop or tablet with software programs. You can use virtual reality interventions for both assessment and treatment. Smartphone applications can remind people to take their medication, to do their skills training. So as a consequence, many people with schizophrenia do better when you give them a smartphone app and remind them to do things. There are some suggestions that online software with self-guided programs can be efficacious for schizophrenia. The benefit of that is you can train cognition and skills in a standalone package. One of the things that we know from previous studies is that people with schizophrenia do train at home. Their adherence to home-based training is the same as office-based training. There's no ambiguity about the benefits of training. People who engage benefit. What we need to do is understand the treatment targets. We need to both treat cognition and functioning. If we want to get functioning to truly improve, we also have to target motivation and engagement. So we want to be treating negative symptoms as well as cognitive impairments. So everyday functional skills are the end state target of all of these interventions because we need people to be able to do things in the real world. So disability is caused by skills deficits exacerbated in two ways, limiting the performance of previously acquired skills and preventing learning new skills. We need to keep in mind what is the validity of these outcomes. If you've never looked for a job, lived on your own, or gone on a date, then you probably don't have the skills that are required to do these activities, even if your cognition was enhanced. I think it's important to keep in mind that when someone gets a cognitive benefit, expecting that they would be able to do standard everyday functional skills that they've never done before is no different than expecting they might be able to play the piano or speak French, something they'd never done before. Acquiring cognitive skills requires targeted training. Enhancing cognition, though, makes the acquisition process faster and more complete. If you combine cognitive training and skills training, you can show that people improve more in their functioning than if they get one or the other intervention alone. So, for instance, in this study here, people were randomized to receiving computerized cognitive training, functional skills training, or both. And it was found that the people who got cognitive training with and without skills training improved in their cognition. People who got skills training with or without cognitive training improved in their skills. But only the people who got both improved in the short run in their everyday functioning as detected by their clinicians who didn't know what the intervention was that they were getting. So if you combine cognitive and functional interventions, the target behavior is improved. It has been shown to be the same for social outcomes as well as everyday functional skills. Basically, engagement is required. In this study that we did, we looked at the extent to which people with serious mental illness improved as a function of how much cognitive training they did. 
but we looked at both how many days they trained and how many levels they achieved, and those didn't predict cognitive improvements. But it's the intensity with which they engaged in the treatment by learning more levels per day when they train that predicted cognitive outcomes. So the nice thing about this intervention is it can be delivered remotely. Secondly, you can also deliver skills training remotely with programs like the FunSat intervention, which is to be paired with cognitive training. So it's not how many days you train, it's not how many levels you achieve, it's how intensely you train each day you train. And finally, talking about the pharmacological augmentation of cognitive remediation and schizophrenia, and what you see is there's a very large array of targeted interventions combining both alertness-promoting agents, agents targeting attention, amphetamine, and TDCS to augment the impact of computerized cognitive training. So to summarize, basically what we see is that in schizophrenia, different dimensions of functioning need to be treated separately. Effective interventions targeting real-world outcomes are going to need to address reduced motivation and engagement for both training and for social activities at the end of the day. A combination therapy that includes cognitive exercise combined with cognitive enhancement is probably an ideal intervention as long as there's some skills intervention operating in the background, too. It has been suggested by the consortium of focusing on computerized cognitive training that a psychosocial intervention is required to get true benefit from computerized cognitive training. That's very likely to be true. What we don't know is whether a substituted digital therapy combined with computerized cognitive training would give you the same benefit that an in-person intervention targeting utilization and engagement with cognitive skills would. So I think we've got a variety of interventions, some of which we know work, some of which are being tested, some of which require engagement, others are pharmacological interventions. So I think what we're seeing here is that we are on the threshold of having an, a large number of possible interventions deliverable remotely and in person using technology and using human trainers that have the potential to improve real-world functioning in people with schizophrenia to an extent that we have not seen previously. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the additional resources. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FMF 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.